Good afternoon, fellow directors, past presidents, members, and guests. Welcome to the 117th season of the Empire Club of Canada. My name is Antoinette Tamilo. I'm the president of the Empire Club of Canada and your host for today's virtual event, The Future is Electric. I'd like to begin this afternoon with an acknowledgement that the land we are broadcasting from is the traditional territory of the many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. For those of you tuning in from regions across the country today, we encourage you to learn more about the traditional territory on which you work or live. I now want to take a moment to recognize our sponsors who generously support the Empire Club and make these events possible. Thank you to our lead sponsor, Hydra One, and our supporting sponsors, Acon, Floor, Kinetrix, USNC, NewScale, Terrestrial Energy, and the Organization of Canadian Nuclear Industries. I also want to thank our season sponsors, Waste Connections of Canada and the Canadian Bankers Association. And last but not least, I also want to thank our event partner, VBC and LiveMeeting.ca for webcasting today's event. Now for a few logistical items. First, if you're finding your internet feed is slow, please click the Switch Streams button on the right-hand side of the screen. And don't hesitate to press the Request for Help button if you are experiencing technical difficulties. Our team will be happy to assist you. I also want to remind everyone participating today that this is an interactive event. Although a recording of this event will be made available, those attending live are encouraged to engage with our speakers by taking advantage of the question box to the right of your screen. We have allotted some time for Q&A towards the end of the discussion. We also invite you to share your thoughts on social media using our hashtag, hashtag Empire Club of Canada and hashtag Net Zero 2050, which you can find in the corner of your viewer throughout the event. It is now my pleasure to call this virtual meeting to order. We are excited to bring to you today this event on a topic that is top of mind with Canadians. Climate change and the environment is an issue that has great implications for our country, our planet and future generations. Learning more about how we can help and how our large institutions are responding is critically important now more than ever. Today, we will hear from the Ontario Power Generation who have delivered one of the world's single largest climate change actions by closing its coal stations. OPG is boldly investing in new technologies that will help drive the clean economy. You'll hear about OPG's climate change plan and why Ontario's largest clean power generator is emphasizing electrification of everything and an all hands on deck approach to generating technology. 
I will now very briefly introduce our panelists and then hand over to them to make the most of our time today and get the discussion started. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome back Kent Hartwick and Anita Sharma to the Empire Club of Canada once again. Ken Hartwick serves as president and CEO of Ontario Power Generation, a clean energy leader and one of North America's most diverse power generators. Ken has spent more than 34 years in the finance and energy sectors. In his previous role as chief financial officer and senior vice president of finance, he led the launch of Canada's first utility green bond, as well as OPG's expansion to the United States through the acquisition of Eagle Creek Renewable Energy LLC. He also championed the development of OPG's first ever climate change plan. Interviewing Ken today is Anita Sharma, national news anchor with CTV News Channel, host of CTV's prime time program, seen nationally from coast to coast. Anita started her journalism career in 2001 as a national network news anchor for CBC television and has interviewed, interviewed newsmakers from around the world, including heads of states, finance ministers, and global business leaders. And there's a rumor out that she'll be interviewing Mr. Hartwick at 7.15 tonight on her show. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about Ken or Anita, you can find their full bios by scrolling down below the video window on your screen. Now I'd like to hand it over to Anita to get the discussion started. Over to you, Anita. Antoinette, thank you so much for that. It's an absolute pleasure to be back with you again, to be back with the Empire Club, and of course, uh, to have this sit-down uh, fireside chat, albeit virtually, uh, with Mr. Hartwick. Uh, Ken, it's great to be with you. As Antoinette suggested, boy, is this such a huge topic uh, right now. It's just making global headlines. We do know uh, that the Canadian government is on a mission. The feds are on a mission to get our nation to a net zero emission situation by 2050. And this is where, Ken, you come in, right, with the OPG. I understand, as, as Antoinette alluded to, uh, you've been making quite uh, significant progress, I guess, in this area to sort of get on side and get green fast. Yeah, Anita, first of all, it's, it's great to be here and great to have, have everybody on the call listening today or watching today. But, uh, but your point's right. I think, you know, Canada's on board, but much more broadly, I think around the world now, we have seen uh, countries, G7 that's going on currently, but, but countries rally around the need to start to do concrete actions to deal with climate change, which is real and impactful. And, and I think all of us in the industry and, and more broadly uh, need to start to think about what our piece of that is, what role we can play. Some of us will be able to play bigger roles. Some will play smaller roles and that's great, but we need everybody playing their role uh, so that uh, there's a clear, we can take sort of a goal and a target that governments tend to set and turn it into actionable items so we actually achieved the goal and target. So I think we're in the very, very early stages of uh, starting down this journey, but it's an exciting one. And, and I think it's something that uh, we'll be talking about for years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, with a, with a target of 2050, uh, that's, uh, that's 30 years out, right? But I understand 
with OPG, you know, let's go macro and then we'll and then we'll we'll really deep dive into this. Uh, what are you setting as as targets for OPG? Because I understand you're actually going to meet these targets uh, ten years ahead of the uh, the Fed's. Uh, uh, I don't want to say demand, but request, if you will. Yeah, I think so. Yes, yeah, so we set our net target, uh, net zero target for 2040, uh, which which advances a little bit. And I think there's two important things or reasons we did that for. Okay. The first is to drive a little bit of leadership that uh, we think, you know, if you're going to actually get to a target by 50, it's like anything we do. Don't leave everything to the last few years. Some companies, some entities have to do more sooner in or, because like anything, the last 10% is really, really hard to do. So we just thought, let's do some of the bigger pieces early. And that way, you know, you have momentum around, around what we're doing, doing. And then others will follow and do their part towards this. Um, and, and then the second reason was, was really, or the second maybe more question I get asked a lot is, uh, do you know exactly what you're going to do to achieve the target by 40? The answer is no. We have a pretty good idea on a lot of it. Other parts, we trust the innovation ingenuity of OPG people, of a lot of our partners, many of which are on this call, you know, on, on the meeting today, to ultimately innovate as we go. So we, we just felt go early, try to get more done quicker. And that last 10%, if, we, if everybody has to struggle a bit, then you have a bit of time to struggle with the hardest parts at the end. It's such a fluid situation, right? Can you talk about targets that are set out like some three decades? And I'm sure a lot of folks appreciate that you're trying to get ahead of that by at least a decade. Uh, electrification is certainly one big component that everyone is looking at. When they see green, they see electricity. We're seeing uh, companies like, uh, I don't even want to name the companies, but basically a lot of companies trying to go green. We're seeing it in the electric vehicle sector. Uh, I know you had made a deal just very recently uh, with the Toronto Transit Commission uh, in terms of helping them electrify maybe on the, char I believe on the charging side. Uh, how critical is it to get that component up and running? You know, if we just had this conversation a few years ago, folks would have been maybe rolling their eyes, folks that aren't in the business, aren't doing what you do on a daily basis. But today, Ken, it seems to be front in mind for a lot of folks as they look at going green and they look squarely at electricity. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. The industry is filled with engineers and accountants, lots of other people as well. And, you know, this is a little bit of a math equation that if you are going to achieve Canada's goals by 50 or OPGs by 2040, the only way to do it is to electrify significant parts of the economy. So, you, you know, you reference the TTC, which is a partnership with the uh, Toronto Transit Commission, us and Toronto Hydro to okay. electrify their bus system because you can't run gas or diesel buses and still hit targets. You know, every car will be electric. Like, and, and my view is they'll be electric much sooner than we think, because eventually consumers will get to the point of saying, I don't want to buy a gas car if I know it won't even be applicable, you know, three years from now. So this happens quicker and we need it to happen quicker. And, uh, and, and I give the TTC a lot of credit. They are very, very innovative in their thought process. And again, they were a company that decided to lead on this to get out in front. And a lot of times when you lead on a topic, uh, you tend to make the first of a kind mistakes and, uh, and those types of things. But it, but it requires uh, entities like TTC and others to step forward and lead if we're really going to get to where we want to go. There's, there's no time to wait and follow, in my view. 
And Ken, it really is a multi-pronged effort, right? You, you need the, the, the companies uh, basically coming in. Uh, you know, you gave us a, a brief idea of what you're up to. And of course, we'll, we'll explore that even further uh, in the minutes and uh, ahead. Uh, but what about on the policy side? So you have the feds essentially coming out and saying, look, we want to achieve this by 2050. What does it look like from an infrastructure point of view? Where, to your point, you know, Joe and Jill sitting at home watching this right now saying, you know, yeah, I would like to buy an electric vehicle. I would like to uh, move towards electrification in other areas too of my life. But what does it look like on the infrastructure side? They need that support. Folks need that support from companies like you and from the feds. Is that not right? Yes. So I'd say at the federal provincial level, I think what you want to see is policies set out to get there. And I think those are set out largely across across Canada. And now it comes into execution. And to put this into a, a sense of magnitude, when we look at Ontario, and I think this is true of Canada and true of probably the US and, and other uh, developed countries, you need a power system that's two to three times as big as what it is now. So two to three times as much generation, transmission, you know, wow. wires, all the things to move it around. And because if you think every car is electric, every bus is electric, buildings are more electric, some of your heating is more electric. Um, this is a massive undertaking. So I think it's good. Governments have set out these broad policy goals. That's definitely a requirement. And now what I think, you know, and it's really a lot of the people that are listening today, it's, it's the business community at large needs to take these and say, great, here is how they can help proceed down these, uh, these paths. And again, from an OPG perspective, you know, when we talk about the power system need to be a lot bigger, we think in terms of how do we build out the generation capability so you can drive an electric car, you know, and everywhere you want to drive it across the province or across the country. And we think that's part of what our role is, is to ensure that uh, this gets facilitated in a, uh, a you know, cost effective way for for the citizens of Ontario and Canada. You know, Canada is such a, a global powerhouse, right? When it comes to energy, we really do fire off on on so many cylinders, no pun intended. Uh, we know what uh, some companies in the in the oil space and the inter, uh, oil and gas space are dealing with uh, right now, trying to comply, trying to get on side, uh, dealing with some political issues. Uh, on the nuclear side, I find this very fascinating. You know, nuclear capabilities, it seems like we really need that. And yet when there's discussion about possibly creating a new generator, creating a new site, there's really that NIMBY in effect, right? Not in my backyard. Where, where is the OPG with respect to this particular area? How are you powering forward, so to speak? Right. So, so I think the starting point is if climate, carbon, uh, pollutants, if they are now defined better as the enemy, that's what we have to reduce, then it's now just a question of how do we electrify as much as we need to electrify in order to reduce it. And I think what people are starting to realize, and this is a lot of people who would have questioned the NIMBY or been part of the NIMBY movement before, is you can't get there without nuclear. Now, it requires every technology. We need more wind. We need more solar. We need more hydroelectric. We need more nuclear. We need more batteries. We need more of a lot of things to double the size of the Ontario system. And that level of maturity in the conversation is just now beginning to happen. And we see it happening on the world stage as well, where countries before that were maybe a bit not prone to be on the nuclear side are now saying, no, it's part of the answer. So if we want to get our climate targets, we're going to have to rethink how we do nuclear. And this is something where, where I think Ontario has an amazing story. We have a 
great nuclear operators. Us and Bruce Power are the, are the two companies that operate the nuclear plants in the province. We have an mm-hmm. amazing supply chain, amazing set of vendors. We, I think we're actually probably one of the leaders in the world in the ability to do this. So, um, so, so I, I'm excited by it. And, and to me, it's, it's now an education process to deal with the NIMBY part of what you raised, which is very fair for people to have questions. Yep. Uh, but, but we think those are, uh, there, there's a more common enemy in, in the foreground, and that's, the, that's climate change. So, so powering ahead with nuclear, and thank you for that, Ken, powering ahead uh, on the nuclear front, give us an idea of where small modular reactors or SMRs uh, fit in. Uh, in this equation, is this the new technology? Is this is this going to help assuage any fears uh, with respect to nuclear? What are your thoughts on that? Sure. So, yeah, first of all, it is the new technology, and, and and we're looking at two different types of SMRs. One are micro, so these might be very small ones that you might locate at a mine site, at a remote community uh, that you know probably operates on diesel right now. Uh, so, and that's where USNC we're partnered with them on on that side. And then we're looking at the bigger grid scale, the ones you use to produce electricity to electrify all the things we want to electrify, of which uh, we will we are working towards siting one out at our Darlington site out in Clarington, so uh, east east of Toronto. Uh, to and that will probably be the first SMR built in North America. Uh, the good thing is that we start to see a number of U.S. Uh, companies, a number of U.S. states begin to move down the same path. Uh, we have four provinces in Canada, so Alberta, Saskatchewan, us, and New Brunswick, all saying we want to move down this technology path. And, and we said we would go first to try to build the first one. And again, there's lots of lots, you know, it's always nice to go second, I will say, but, uh, <laughs> but we, we just think it's the right thing. I always we, wanted to be number two. <laughs> yeah, in, in this case, but no, but we, but we think we have, like I say, we have great partners when we deal with Bruce Power and New yeah. Brunswick Power and then our, our supply chain folks that, that deal with us. So we're pretty confident that we're going to cite the first one and have it operational by 28, which is what the, the current goal is. Okay. I, I have, uh, you know, as part of my discussions on CTV News Channel, when I cover off the, the business angles, I'm really obsessed right now with what the labor force uh, is going to look at. We look at wage inflation. We look at, the, you know, the recent data where a lot of folks, whether it's the pandemic, uh, who knows what it is, you know, uh, rich in assets. A lot of folks are choosing to stay out of the workforce. Uh, for OPG, for folks in your industry that are really looking for that uh, that work or those, those, uh, a specific skill set. How are you doing on that front? When you build out, when you look out 10, 20, 30 years, maybe even two, three years, uh, what does your labor force look like? Or do you have any concerns in this area that perhaps uh, the training is not there to get you to that, to that next level, Ken? Uh, yeah, the concerns exist. I think your point's a really good one because it's, it's both, it's, it's keeping the skill set current is also a big part of this. And if Canada goes on a big infrastructure build, which you know the federal government announced as part of their budget, that draws in the need for resources, the need for different yeah. skills at the trades level, as well as at the professional level. And, and so I think it's incumbent on a lot of us, and we do a lot of work with a, with a couple of the universities, the colleges, and the skilled trade schools to promote this. And, and it's, it's very interesting. You know, some of the promotion of it needs to happen back in early high school. Right to get mm-hmm. people interested, wow. in, um, you know, everyone thinks of a of a of a welder. What do you, what comes to mind? Dark, dingy, uh, uh, 
gear on and a mask on and it's a dirty work. Now, welding is actually very, very interesting now. It's robotic. It's mm-hmm. high skill. The people that we have out at our stations that do it, but it, it's people don't see it. So we, we have spent a lot of time going back into high schools and saying, yeah. this is a great career to try to build that pipeline so that by the time people decide, do I go to college? Do I go to university? Or do I go and get my, whatever my appropriate ticket might be um, in order to go into the trades to try to really populate that. And then the second part, I'd say on the skilled side, it's, and this is very specific to nuclear, is we're doing a lot of work back in the engineering schools to say, look, nuclear is now the thing. So if you're going through engineering school, maybe you should start to think about it. And we're getting a great response from the universities that are starting to say, yes, they do think it's part of it. And so their curriculum is starting to alter towards that. Um, I, w- I will say just the final point on, on what yes, you're raising is I do find with COVID, what we've been through, that has been particularly impactful on the women in our workplace. And How so? Uh, you know, childcare, you know, and yeah. whether it's whether it's the right or wrong, but, you know, the primary responsibility in many cases with schools, with daycares. And 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 again, it's something as a company we've tried to be very uh, thoughtful and empathetic on to ensure that we can accommodate, um, you know, the reality until we get back to normal in September, maybe, I hope. Yeah, that, that's a that's a fascinating angle too. If we just want to explore that for a little bit, we're seeing more and more companies can uh, just come out now and uh, letting their employees right. And you're at the top of OPG, uh, you'd be spearheading this as well. Uh, just letting their companies know what September, October, what the fall looks like. Uh, hopefully, when we're post pandemic, I know we're in the final stretch, but we're certainly not out of it uh, as yet with all these uh, discussions of variants. But what does that look like for you, whether it's women, whether it's men, whether it's, you know, you got a lot of these getting back to the labor force issue, right? You have a lot of folks now saying, uh, I don't want to go back to work five days a week. I don't physically want to be in a space uh, five days a week. And I say say this knowing full well, you built a beautiful company, (laughs) beautiful (laughs) headquarters in downtown Toronto. What does that look like for you, Ken? I'm really curious because uh, you get all that intel. It is. Now, to start with, like, so we have about 9,500 employees, 7,000 have come come in to work every day, right? They work in a plant. We're all essential, uh, deemed essential service, Mm -hmm. and they go in and run our plants every day. So it's really the 2,500 that we're dealing with. And what we've announced is that we intend to phase people back into work in September, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, all subject to any changes in, you know, For sure. you know variants or, or other, other events that could happen, but to bring people back in, because we'll probably do it, uh, with some flexibility. Like I said, I think we have to be very empathetic in our thought process, you know, while schools restart, daycares restart, all the things that allow us to function in our life and in our work careers, uh, to allow that to happen. Uh, but I do want people back because the one thing I think they really, really miss, and this is especially our younger, younger people in their career. It's yeah. the interaction. It's the mentoring. It's the five minutes in the hallway to talk about an issue. Sure. And, and, you know, too long, it, it impacts people's development. So I, I'm keen to get people back um, because, uh, you know, I may not be working in 2050 uh, when we hit our climate or, you know, when Canada hits its climate target. So I need someone younger in the company that, uh, <laughs> that can carry the torch. Uh, you know, I only have one final question for you. Uh, and then you let me know if there's something you want to bring up that, that I haven't uh, gotten to. But it just goes back to the whole idea of hydro produced energy. We talked about getting 
governments involved or you already, as you outlined, the governments already have made their policy. The feds have already made their policy clear. It's really up to you and your colleagues now to execute uh, and to hit those targets. But where are you with working with uh, neighboring provinces like Manitoba, like Quebec? And I asked that question inside of a bigger uh, potential problem, which is Maybe not for your sector, but with oil and gas, let's say, you know, we've seen all the issues with pipelines, particularly with what's happening uh, south of the border, regulations, uh, again, NIMBY at play with various states coming forward, blocking certain pipelines from going forward. Uh, how important is it to work with your provincial partners in terms of uh, powering ahead here? Yeah, it, it's, it's important. It's ongoing. We interact with virtually every province and a number of the neighboring states, which we're connected to as well. So, you know, um, all the ones you think, New York, Ohio, all, all down through the East Coast. So all of these are part of it. But this is where the conversation, I think, needs to get far more mature than it is at times, is that, uh, you know, we, we have the expression, with, uh, which is all hands on deck. It's going to require everyone to solve this problem, every technology every province working maybe more closely together. And I'd say the one thing on, uh, you've mentioned oil and gas, which, uh, mm -hmm. which I think is important. Um, you know, we have to recognize we have the resource here in Canada. We have a lot of the resource here in Canada. And what, if we step back and started to, and started to think around, we're not going to phase it out tomorrow. We need a plan to decarbonize it, to make it cleaner. And why are we importing anything from any country who doesn't have the same environmental responsibility we do? That's a question I think that should be asked and should be answered. Because, you know, and, and I say this on some of the other technologies is that, um, and, and I love solar, we have a solar facility, but the environmental impact to produce a solar panel is extreme, right? You mine some minerals, you dump waste products, dump them down a river, you manufacture in China, dump some more stuff down a river, and we get a solar panel in a box and we say, well, that's amazing. It's all green. It isn't. So this is why the maturity of this conversation and it applies to our oil and gas sector. We need to be helping them decarbonize what they do so we can utilize it as a transition resource until we have a fully green economy. And uh, that's and, a different level of maturity than most people want to talk about. And real quick, before we wrap this up, you talked about the import side. How significant is the export side? Uh, in terms of, you know, we have this, we have to deal with the fact that we do have this energy source right now. And to your point, it's not going to be a full stop, you know, stop this tomorrow right now. It has to be a gradual process, especially for an industry that has been powering, uh, you know, for a, historically a long, long time, the Canadian uh, economy. Uh, how, how, what does exporting look like if you see issues potentially south of the border? What does it look like in terms of working with even global partners on that stage? Yeah, it, it's going to become harder and harder. It's, it's it, you know, that's just a reality. You see it with the pipeline issues now. You see it with other things. And, and this, this is why I think if we step back a little bit and said, how do we support our oil and gas industry so they're operating in the most environmentally friendly way possible and then don't import from anyone who doesn't? I think that's actually a, a better answer if we're serious about climate change. If we're just serious about, you know, there's a term called greenwashing where I just pretend I am. Uh, <laughs> if that's what we want to do, uh, we don't need to do that then. No, uh, look, uh, 2040, right? OPG's target, 10 years ahead of the, uh, the Fed's request. So uh, it looks like uh, you all are powering ahead on that front. I, I want to thank you, Ken. This has been an absolutely uh, exhilarating conversation uh, so much uh, information. I hope it's been value-add uh, for the folks tuning in uh, with the Empire Club. 
Uh, Ken, any final thoughts? No, I, I just re- really maybe for for the folks uh, folks listening is uh, you know I, I think this this is a if we all think about what our role is on climate change, just encourage everyone to step back and say what is the maximum role any of us, our organizations and or us as individuals can play, and really challenge ourselves to do more quicker. And uh, doing more quicker sometimes you fail once in a while when you try that. Uh, but it's better. And we'll we'll have enough, enough successes along the way. And I think that's what I'm very proud of the team at OPG is that uh, as collectively as a group of 9,500 people, uh, we've decided to try to do more and more quickly. And, uh, and, and I think, I think we'll do, do a decent job of it along the way. Okay. Uh, fluid situation. Everyone's powering ahead on full cylinders, all of those metaphors. Yes. Uh, Ken, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, chatting with you. Are you going to stick around though, right? We have a question and answer segment coming up. I know a lot of folks, uh, the messages are coming through, have questions for you. So in the meantime, Ken, thank you. Let's uh, send it back to Antoinette. Uh, Antoinette, take it away. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Hey, Anita, I think you're better positioned to ask the questions. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is your shtick. (laughs) <laughs> All right, let's do it. Let's do All it. All right, I'm, I'm gonna... handing it right back to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, Ken, that was short and sweet. Here we are. Let's go. Um, so we have a question from Mike. Uh, he says, he asks, can OPG provide climate leadership and initiatives beyond Ontario? Yeah, uh, I, I th- the real short answer is yes. And that's, that is our intention. And, uh, you know, as, as we mentioned uh, at, at the introduction, we own a series of about 70 hydroelectric plants through mostly Northeast U.S. Um, we are working with the other provinces. So Saskatchewan is also looking at new nuclear and we are we have an MOU with them to work with them on mm-hmm. potential new nuclear, which would replace coal facilities. And, and I think the leadership also comes from going first on certain things. Right. So, uh, you know, one of the one of the initiatives that we've started off is to uh, look at building hydrogen plants, which will be part of the new fuel mix right. going forward. Uh, we've indicated we'll we'll move towards building two. And again, our thought is that if we can start, perhaps other provinces or other companies will say, great, we'll just emulate and start. So leadership, I think, can both be physical leadership across, you know, partnerships we have across the uh, country, but also mm-hmm. uh, just by leading itself. Uh, will cause others to do things that benefit uh, benefit the goals that we all have. Yeah, very interesting, right? It's tough to forge through on your own. And with this being such a new initiative, uh, uh, it's going to be fascinating, right? And probably integral and important to learn from your peers, work with your peers uh, as you try to, to, to move ahead here. Let's get to another question, Ken. This is from, well, we don't know who it's from, but what does Ken see as the single biggest barrier uh, to a complete conversion to electrification. So you talked earlier uh, just about uh, working with the TTC, getting everyone on board as quickly as possible, doing this in a responsible manner. What do you see as possible obstacles here? I, I'd say it is indecision, which is usually the obstacle to everything. Um, and it's it's indecision by governments who, mm-hmm. because every move, the move to electrification is a transition. Right. And if you look to some of the car companies, right, GM, Ford, Toyota, they've all announced they're going to transition from you know, gas uh, engines to electric. 
right? And, right. and there, whenever you try to transition, there's a disruption uh, in the process and there's there's tends to be gaps. And so it can cause companies to be very indecisive, it can cause governments mm. to be very indecisive. You know, wait till the next election cycle. Uh, you know, this riding might be mad. That one will be happy. All these things slow it down. And, and the one thing on I'll give the federal government credit for is they've done a good job of saying, let's move some of our targets forward to see if we can accomplish certain things a bit quicker so we can right. hit our 2050 targets, which I which I really support. And uh, but now companies have to have to take that and be pioneers in some cases uh, and but really start to lead versus waiting too much. And that, that's why I said at OPG, we, you know, we put out our climate plan just before the holidays last mm-hmm. year. We moved the date up. We have lots of very interesting things we're doing that will support it. And, and what we need is every company in Canada saying, we're just going to start. Uh, and, and, but, but indecision is the, uh, is the, uh, the barrier to every good idea. And can indecision costs money, right? <laughs> every day you're waiting, every day you're potentially uh, sitting on your hands, not able to execute, uh, you know, a, pl- a path forward. And to your point earlier, uh, seeking perfection, like we've seen with the pandemic, looking for perfection. If you wait for perfection, you're not going to, most people aren't going to get anywhere. So in this case, uh, indecision really can be uh, a barrier uh, economically as well, right? It could hit the bottom line. Yeah, and, and that's why if you, if you look across the, a lot of the partners that we deal with uh, from the OCNI and, and really the industry partners, what I give yeah. them a lot of credit for as they've embraced the role that, that we can play in climate is I, we start to see ideas coming our way and to other people that produce electricity and, and you know Hydro One that, that distributes, transmits it. We start to see these innovative thoughts and ideas come forward that we just wouldn't have seen otherwise. And so that's why we have a lot of smart people in Ontario. We have a lot of smart people in this sector. We need more. Um, yeah. And and with that comes that innovation, entrepreneurship, and uh, then indecision sort of goes by the wayside um, if if you have that. So uh, so we I, I think we have the brains to do it. Uh, now we just have to be brave enough to push forward on it. You know, just a, this is a side note coming from me, a side question, but what does that electrification look like uh, on the streets of, of you know, of Barrie uh, or Oshawa or Toronto? Are, are we going to see, uh, I'm thinking vehicles for now, but are we going to see charging stations, uh, you know, is OPG going to be front and center working with other companies as well uh, to ensure that the infrastructure is there? What does what does the role look like to you? A Canadian city look like to you uh, insofar as electrification, electrification is concerned? Let's just say five years out. Right. So so I think it, if it looks something like if I'm driving a car into work, uh, I'm not worried about where there's a charger because there's chargers along the street at the parking stops. There's chargers at, at every parking lot. There's charging stations in every building that you park in every office tower. And it's the new gas the car, station. It's the new gas station. It's exactly <laughs> right. And but when I park my car, I plug it in. But I also give Toronto Hydro the ability to draw power out of the battery if on a really hot summer day. So now the car is also a smart battery producer of electricity. I'll make sure it's charged at the end of the day. So when you go to drive home, you're not down there and your battery has zero. So it's creating this smart technology environment where people embrace it. You know, TTC, it's very similar. So you think about that infrastructure. Every bus will be electric. Every wow. uh, 
the charging station where the buses go when it's not peak time. So if peak times are, you know, probably six in the morning till 10 and then again in the afternoon, mm-hmm. we can use those buses as batteries uh, to put power on the grid in the middle part of the day where it's less busy. So I think just people are going to now see that it's, you know, if you drive a gas car, you don't even think about it when you drive out of your house. I'm going to stop at a gas station. I'm going to park my car. It's going to be the same thing. It's going to take all that anxiety people have around what do I do? And it'll just, (laughs) it'll it'll be, it'll be stuck. And and a lot of it will be technology enabled. That's why I think it's getting cool again. It's not just a big power plants. It's also how do we use cars, buses, other vehicles to, uh, to do this. You know, it's been a political hot rod, right? Uh, When you talk about electrification, when you talk about climate change and, I think, you know, some folks want to make clear that it doesn't really matter what political party you're from, you know, a cleaner environment should be, I hate to use the word should, but should be uh, the goal of every citizen. The question is, how do you get there? Uh, which is why you and I are sitting here tonight, uh, today having this deep dive discussion about how to get there, how to get there smartly with minimal economic impact, right? Getting people on board, moving forward. You talk about working with Toronto Hydro insofar as, you know, these potential or these upcoming charging stations are, are concerned. I also want to know your, your, your thoughts on natural gas, because I understand you use that to supplement nuclear power in peak periods, like you talked about with Toronto Hydro. So where do you see the future of natural gas? Yeah, so it's one of the criticisms we get in our climate plan is how can you move towards carbon neutral if you're running a fleet of, of natural gas plants, right, which, which produce carbon. And again, this goes back to the maturity of the discussion. You do need some forms of electricity because batteries don't work uh, all the time. Solar panels don't mm-hmm. work at night. Windmills don't work uh, certain parts of the day. So you need generation that can come up or down to keep the whole system going. The real part of the conversation around natural gas, and this is your reference to the oil industry as well, but natural gas plants for us, is how do we decarbonize the impact of a natural gas plant? So how do we use blend hydrogen in, which we're working on a partnership that would reduce the amount of carbon out of a gas plant. So all of a sudden the gas plant is cleaner. How do you do things like carbon capture? So you capture all the carbon and store it that comes out of a natural gas plant. So what do you have? Then you have a really clean natural gas plant. And this is where people... uh, you know, I just bet on our innovation much more than what I think some people do. We will figure this out, and not just me, but the collectively the industry. And by the time we get to 2040, what we'll have is clean natural gas plants that produce very little carbon, but serve their purpose. And, uh, and, uh, and I think it'll be an important part of what we do. So that's why I say all these things, innovation is a funny thing. It solves problems we don't even know about. It also yeah. solves problems we do. Uh, so, uh, and it, it will solve this problem. Okay. I'm also really curious and it looks like Jill is as well. I was watching business news this morning. I'm sure you do this every morning. I do. And I saw Mary Barra of GM and she was asked a question by journalists, uh, about batteries, you know, should they be deep diving into the whole battery uh, situation, seeing that as a lucrative opportunity for GM to that point, we have a question from Jill and she asks, you can more electrical power will require more batteries. Now, batteries don't last forever and can be a real disposal issue. How do you see that particular potential issue being tackled? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, so batteries are, are there's, there's a couple of issues with batteries. First of all, they yeah. are required. They're gonna be part of the energy transition. 
So the first is the manufacturing of the battery. It's very, it's got a lot of critical min, min, uh, minerals, lithium among mm-hmm. others. Um, the mining process to get those minerals is highly biodiversity destructive. So step one is I think as a country or maybe blocks of countries, we need to decide what is the right way to make a battery uh, in order to do it in an environmentally responsible way. So we're not destroying the environment in some other country and pretending we didn't do it, right? So uh, that's, that's step one. Let's make them the right way. On yeah. the disposal, we, we deal this with nuclear all the time, right? So in nuclear, we have used fuel. Uh, we get a lot of questions around what do you do with it all? Um, we have it all stored. I know where it is. I can take you out. We can walk around, uh, point to it. Uh, it's stored well. So we're very good environmental stewards with nuclear fuel. And it needs to be the same for battery technologies. When a battery reaches its end of life, uh, perhaps a secondary purpose, but then it's real end of life. Uh, we have to then say, let's fund and develop a way we're going to store and recycle those batteries. And that's mm-hmm. where increasingly the international uh, uh, information that comes out on this is that battery basically have to pull them apart, recycle the materials. So you use it another time. And what you can't recycle, uh, you have to come up with a good storage process like we do in nuclear. So, so again, I don't even think the storage part is a big, is really a difficult problem. It's okay. uh, we do it really well. Um, now you have to figure out who does it, right? We do it for our plants. For <laughs> so if you have GM selling batteries in their car, you know, is it GM's responsibility to to store the used batteries that come out of a GM car? You know that 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 policy part needs to be sorted out. When does that policy part need to be sorted out? Like, well, sooner uh, rather than later, right? Especially Sooner. if you're going whole hog in this uh, direction. Yeah, because you, you already have it happening now, right? For some electric cars, their yeah. batteries are now reaching end of life. Um, you have it in solar for solar panels reaching their end of life. What do you do? It's You can't take them and throw them in a dump uh, or a, in a you know uh, a garbage yeah. disposal. So these are really policy decisions. And that's why I say the maturity on this conversation needs to improve mm-hmm. in this area. So we are we are all being environmental stewards. I always say as good an environmental steward as the nuclear industry. If we're all there, none of these problems are problems. All right. You ready for another question, Ken? Sure. <laughs> You're doing great, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's, uh, let's go to a question from Tom. Some non-government organizations are promoting removing fossil fuel-fired boilers and furnaces out of buildings in Ontario and instead installing electric heat pumps. Will we have the generation, transmission, and distribution capacity to heat all of Ontario's buildings with heat pumps? Uh, the real short answer is no. Uh, okay. So if, if we did it all tomorrow or uh, we don't, and that's why I said, you know, it is part of uh, when I make the reference to the power system needing to be two to three times the size it is now, Uh, Then you get into a question of how quickly do these things happen? How quickly do we put heat pumps um, and electrify buildings, offices, homes? How quickly does car charging, like where everyone owns an electric vehicle or or a bus that's electric, Mm -hmm. um, these things have to be thought out as far as what's the timeline? And then if I back up and say, like to build a new generation, like to build a nuclear plant, the one we're talking about, we've been working on it for two years and we think we can have it operational by 28. Right, so you're sort of looking at nine, 10 years to build a new hydroelectric station. Uh, you're sort of looking at 10, 12 years, 
So that's why that's why I really think governments need to start to look and say, we have the policy, we have the goals, we have the targets, all good. Now, how do we facilitate uh, building out the grid that, uh, or the generation capability, the grid that needs to happen uh, to deal exactly with what Tom asked? So, um, but infrastructure takes a while to do. So that's why some of these things need to start you know, now, this year, next year, not let's wait eight years and then see, because then you won't be able to do it. Well, yeah, because you can't pivot on a dime, right? It's like, you know, I was going to say the Titanic, but I don't want to say the Titanic. <laughs> but it's like a big ship, right? You, 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 have to, you have to have a plan. You need to look out years, not months. So with that, uh, which was my question to you off the top, how important is it to be working in concert with the various institutions, right? The, on the policy level with government and then also having the workers to do to execute your vision. And that's where your universities and colleges come in, right? Let's get to, Ken, uh, a question from Jean-Louis. Ken, are you still targeting end of 2021, end of this year, to select OPG technology for SMR, small modular reactors? Uh, Yes. So our our intention would be to uh, make the decision uh, on on which technology to use in November, so November, early December, uh, which would then give us the time to do a lot of the licensing requirements and other things that need to be done and, and get ourselves set for construction so it's operational by 28. Uh, and, and again, th- th- this goes to the, the point you were just raising and talking about. It's important yeah. to start. It's important to move on these. And I will say the, the one additional piece to this that's really important, and uh, Antoinette mentioned this at the beginning, is virtually every project we do is mm-hmm. in partnership with one of our Indigenous partners. You know, we built, you know, spent about $5 billion over the last number of years building hydroelectric facilities. Uh, they've all been our partners. At, on our nuclear station, they will be a partner in that. And again, that's that's under under discussion. But we always have to think. That's why some of these projects they take longer for the right reasons. And this is the right way to do business. Uh, and but it's also uh, something we have to have to be very aware of as we as we plan out the rush to electrify everything. Is that uh, let's ensure we have the infrastructure. I don't want you to be driving down the street, plug into the charger, just to find out it doesn't work. <laughs> exactly. Uh, make for a rough day. That's that's the new flat tire, right? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> that's that's the E flat tire. Um, you know, you you touched on something very interesting. Uh, this is a great discussion, by the way, at least from my end. But uh, indigenous communities, you know, boy, they're in the forefront. Uh, such a tragedy, you know, discussing the Kamloops issue uh, from a couple of weeks ago. We're staying on top of that on CTV News Channel. To that point, though, uh, I did an interview on the network a couple of days ago just about working with Aboriginal business communities or Aboriginal communities. What does that business model look like? How is that going for you? How integral? Do Give us some more color on that. How integral is it to work with these communities uh, so that everyone can, everyone prospers here? Yeah, it to me, for, first of all, it, it's... The partnerships we have across our hydroelectric stations, we built a solar station down towards Hamilton. We have two, two First Nation partners, our, our owners in it. They are great partners. And, you know, first of all, they're great. They're sophisticated. But more, I think as importantly, what they bring is this environmental stewardship conversation to a different level, right? Because it's it's their land. Also, built. 
Well, it's their land we're building on. So, yeah. you know, when we go to build a hydroelectric station, you're diverting water, you're changing the flow of a river, it affects fish, it affects the biodiversity around it. And what we find in our discussions as we bring, the, uh, bring them in as partners is that discussion is more rich. And therefore, we make better decisions because once you build a hydro station or a nuclear station, it's there for 50 years. You know, Sir Adam Beck's been there for 100, over 100. But uh, so these are important. So, so I don't think we should be doing an infrastructure project in Canada without uh, not just the consultation process, but without uh, thinking of them, them as partners in the project which mm-hmm. is good. For, I think it's good for, I think it's the right thing to do. And I think what it points to is uh, also the economic prosperity of some of our indigenous communities, which is great. And it's just, again, just, I think as a company, we're very proud of, we, we haven't done everything right, but we've done a few things right in this area. And, and I think we're very proud of what we've been able to accomplish. All right. Thanks. Thanks for uh, your comments uh, on that front. Uh, okay, it's 12.50, uh, technically the end of our Q&A, but we've got a few that we, sh- we I think we can get through, power through okay. uh, real quick if you're game. You want to do that? Sure, short answers. Okay, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, you've been great. <laughs> you've been great. Okay, so let's do one from Lori. Ken mentioned decarbonizing the full supply chain. Is there a concern about the supply of rare metals? You touched on this a bit earlier. Uh, supply of uh, lack of supply, rather, of rare metals and resources being used in batteries, uh, EVs, and other green energy sources. Can yes, it, this is a central issue to getting to a green economy. That okay. uh, the metals there's there's six or seven core min- critical minerals. Ontario has a strategy for it that they're just beginning to roll out. The feds have one. Uh, but it requires a lot of action. I don't think we can go and be reliant on three or four countries in the world to get our critical minerals from. It is, it's a recipe to not being able to get certain minerals. And there's some we just can't get in Canada. There's a lot we can. So it is a strategic imperative, I think, for the country to develop a supply chain for these minerals uh, rather than- One of those countries is China, right? Yeah, one, you know, from a, I think China, the report I read, they smelt about 80% of many of them. So uh, wow. they, man, and they mine a lot, you know, Congo's a big one, Chile is big, but uh, some of these countries and, uh, but if, if we need these for solar panels, for batteries, for a whole bunch of different technologies, we need to be somewhat reliant. And a good lesson from the pandemic is when you don't have the ability to produce a vaccine, uh, you get very reliant on other people. We can't let ourselves get into that spot on critical minerals. Yeah, we saw how that uh, rolled out or didn't roll out, right? Being vaccine takers and not vaccine makers, uh, yeah. hopefully. Uh, and it doesn't have to be, that's a great, that's a great point. It doesn't have to be the next pandemic. It could be anything, uh, uh, you know, we got to be prepared, right? The, the more independent we can be uh, as a nation, uh, one would think that it'll make us uh, a lot more prosperous. Ken, question from Anne. What security will will there be when everything is dependent on the electricity grid? Will there be stored capacity to deal with outages? Uh, yes. So, so I think on the security, we always think about two things. So uh, what happens when certain of the technologies aren't available or don't work? It's how do you build a system? This way, something like hydrogen will be important. It's just a way to store energy. You store it in hydrogen 
and then you just bring it back onto the system as electricity if you need to use it. Uh, pump storage where you fill up reservoirs and then use them when you need them. So the storage to me is just another form of generation. And that's mm-hmm. how a robust system needs to be built. Hydro-Quebec has a lot, right? Because they they're, they have ability to basically store behind a lot of their big water facilities and use it when it's required. So so yeah, it, 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 is, it is part of, the other part of security, I think we, as it, we get more reliant on electricity is cyber. It becomes even more important than that you can protect the entire electricity sure. system from the stuff we're seeing happen in the U.S. with colonial yeah. pipeline, these other things. So it's uh, um, like I say, once we're 100% electric or, the, or close to it, um, you can't have the system being knocked out by cyber activities. So both of those, both of those security pieces are, are important. And we know that's a, certainly a big topic, uh, presumably being discussed right now uh, between uh, Russia and uh, and the U.S., yes. right? The, the presidents of both nations uh, in Geneva. Real uh, quick answer, sir, if I can uh, get to this. It dovetails from what you just talked about. Can OPG, it's from Mike, can OPG, uh, what can OPG do to lead the hydrogen economy? Final yeah, so- question. We're, we're going to do exactly what we've announced. We're going to, uh, we're doing the business cases to build two hydrogen facilities at two of our facilities. Uh, we're going to, which I think will then give others confidence to do the same. So this is not, some, we're not going to produce all the hydrogen that Ontario needs or Canada needs. There's mm-hmm. lots of other people that can do that, but we're going to lead the way in doing it, make a few mistakes in doing it, and that'll be okay. Um, but then I think it will encourage many others across the country to go ahead and do the same thing. And, uh, but, but we'll have a hydrogen capability by uh, 23 or 24 uh, if we move as quickly as what I think our team will move. All right. Ken, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, catching up with you, sir, uh, doing a deep dive into all these different uh, power sources and seeing what lies ahead for, uh, for the economy and what lies ahead for the nation. Uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with you tonight. CTV News Channel, seven and about 7.15 Eastern Standard Time. So we'll pick up the conversation. Hopefully uh, folks watching us now uh, will tune in tonight as well. Ken, thank you. Thank you very much. I really, really appreciate it. Really appreciated the, uh, the, the conversation. I think it's one that, uh, that everybody needs to hear. So I think this is, this is a good continuation of it. Absolutely. All right, Ken, Antoinette, take it away. Now I'll throw back to you, Antoinette. (laughs) Thank you, Anita and Ken. And I'm sure Ken and our audience will agree that you would do a much better job at answering the questions (laughs) than I ever would have. You did. It was a magnificent conversation, a very insightful discussion around the future of energy and the role electricity will play in reaching net zero by 2050. I would now like to introduce Daniel Levitin, a Vice President, Stakeholder Relations at Hydro One to deliver some closing remarks. Thank you, Antoinette. Uh, well, as you heard, my name is Daniel. I'm uh, representing Hydro One today. I, I know I speak for a lot of us here when I, I say I'm looking forward to, uh, to being able to do this in person in the future. Uh, it's a really, really engaging conversation. And maybe we'd start there by thanking the Empire Club of Canada for hosting the event. Uh, to Anita Sharma and Ken Hartwick for the, the timely and, and really, really important discussion on our electric future, Ontario's in particular. Uh, you know, I can say as the province's largest electricity transmission and distribution company, uh, we operate 98% of Ontario's transmission grid. We power 42 local distribution companies. We directly serve 1.4 million customers, uh, residential and business customers, 88 Indigenous communities. 
Uh, and we often reflect that Ontario is 40% of Canada's population. And uh, we, along with OPG and a number of other players in the sector, uh, really do power Canada's economy. Uh, the closing of Ontario's coal plants in particular led to the single largest reduction of GHG emissions, not only in Ontario, but across Canada. And the result is that our grid is largely emission-free, one of Canada's cleanest electricity grids. Uh, for us at Hydro One, this clean energy mix means that 96% of the electricity we deliver is clean. Powering cars, trucks, trains, buses, boats with electricity, not to mention large facilities, rather than gas or diesel, will make a huge impact. Uh, in Ontario, more than 30% of our carbon emissions come from transportation, so there's a real opportunity there. It's also why we're really proud to be partnered with OPG to create the, uh, the IVIC charging network, uh, which by the end of the year will be Ontario's largest and most connected EV networks with 160 chargers operating in 70 locations across the province. So as, uh, you, know, as you might have heard, the grid's ability to integrate and be flexible is, is critical for Canada to achieve that net zero target by 2050, which is why we are making uh, necessary investments in a smarter sustainable and reliable electricity system to energize life for families, businesses and communities now and in the future. Obviously the benefits of electrific electrification are significant. It lowers costs for customers, displaces carbon, it's good for the environment and supports made in Ontario jobs and economic growth. In order to uh, effectively take action against climate change, however, and support the rise of new technologies like electric vehicle manufacturing, battery storage, we have to act now. And uh, I think Ken laid that out quite clearly it's going to take a, a village so to speak to uh, to do that and uh, we can certainly say at hydro one working with industry partners like OPG uh, you know the the right investments need to be made uh, we need to prioritize those investments and uh, ensure that uh, Ontario is very well prepared again on behalf of hydro one and everyone in attendance today uh, thanks Anita for leading a great conversation and, and Ken for for your discussion today and your leadership thank you uh, thank you all. Thank you. Of course, and, and thanks everybody for attending and supporting these important discussions. And uh, of course, please be safe. Thank you, Daniel. And uh, again, thank you, Anita and Ken and everyone for joining us today. Uh, June's a busy month for the Empire Club with three more events in the calendar. Coming up next is an Empire uh, Club Nights event focusing on the next Canadian federal election Ooh. titled Back to the ballot box. Aren't we looking forward to that? The event will take place on June 23rd at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Following that on June 28th at 12 uh, noon Eastern Standard Time, we will be hearing about getting back to normal, what it means and what it will take. And then on June 29th at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time as well, we'll be discussing building better in 2021 by reflecting on our past and looking to our future. Registration for all of our virtual events is complimentary and more details are available at empireclubofcanada.com. We hope to see you then. Thank you all again. And uh, this meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>